Discussing the commodities markets, what's happening and why. We talk to the experts, the traders, the investors, and the companies they're investing in. You're listening to Commodity Watch Radio with Dominic Frisbee. Hello and welcome to Commodity Watch Radio. I'm Dominic Frisby and in today's show I'm talking to Mike Mishedlock of globaleconomicanalysis.blogspot.com and he's also an advisor to Sitka Pacific Capital. And also on the phone from Hong Kong is trader and founder of Global Edge Investors, Mike Hampton. Good evening to you, Mish, and good morning to you, Mike. Um, let's start with you, Mish. You've called these markets uh, brilliantly. Gold had a big, big sell-off today. Um, you've been calling for deflation, and certainly we've seen declining prices in just about every asset class. But you've also called for a return to some kind of gold-backed currency. What, what's your outlook for gold at the moment? Well, um, I have called, that's my personal point. I've not said that I think that that is about to happen. But I tell, have to tell you that I was uh, kind of shocked when I saw the comments come out of uh, Jean-Claude Trichet, the uh, chair of the ECB, uh, calling for a return to Bretton Woods and possibly a return to the gold standard. What, wasn't that amazing? It, it 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 actually was, and um, it just kind of hit me. He wants to return to the discipline of Bretton Woods, and that's kind of interesting because I've got a book that um, I've been recommending people to read. It's on my uh, website, and the book is called uh, "Monetary Elite Versus Gold's Honest Discipline." And although it's possible to theoretically have um, a sound currency based on something other than gold, in practice, we've, history has never, ever seen it happen. So it'll be interesting to see if we can get back to such a system. Clearly, the United States would uh, fight it right now. However, the U.S. would probably be one of the biggest recipients because we've got the biggest supply of gold. And uh, places like England, you know, that sold a lot of their gold, right at the bottom uh, uh thank you brown but um and we'll see it's i think it's going to take a panic to get there and i don't think this panic so far is it but fortunately we're having discussions go in that direction and th and that is what i think needs to happen i outlined four things on my blog i think we need to formulate a basis for a sound system of currencies Gold is the, the best one. I suppose one could come up with something else. We need to eliminate central bank micromanaging, micro-mismanaging, actually, interest rates. That's what we saw with, with the Greenspan and the Bernanke Fed. We need to eliminate fractional reserve lending, and we need to get rid of the FDIC. All of those things need to happen. They're not going to happen right away. And... Um, We've got a chance now since, you know, Trichet is calling for these things. Mike, you know, do you have any comments on this? Well, I, I just wanted to, uh, one little point of that is uh, I'm remembering a conversation I had with Jim Turk going back many, many years. It would be at least 10 years. 
And uh, what I recall from that conversation was one of the reasons he likes gold uh, as a backing for a currency is over a long periods of time, like decades and centuries, the supply of gold on average has increased about one and a half or two percent per annum, which is approximately equal to the increase in the global population. So, uh, you know, because those two line up so well, uh, you know, historically, uh, you know, and until now, it would have been something very stable upon which to base a world currency. It's also considered the optimum level of inflation, isn't it, that 1% to 2%? I don't think one would call it uh, um, an optimum level of inflation. I, I don't believe there is such a thing as an optimum level of inflation. And I also think that a lot of the gold that... Um, uh, is I think we're not going to see huge increases in the supply of gold like we have seen in the past. Uh, mining efficiencies, everything has has increased. If the price of gold gets too high, you know one can always extract it from seawater. So there are certain limits on on, on that. But over time, actually, uh, with a sound currency, interest rates are low. They will remain low as long as we don't get into a fractional, you know, reserve pattern. That is what happened. You know, people said, well, why did the Great Depression happen? Well, the Great Depression happened not because, you know, and it had nothing to do with, with gold. What it, what it had to do with the expansion of credit, just as we've seen over the last three, four, five years. Uh, uh, margin accounts were invented uh, right proceeding up to the Great Depression. We also saw um, payment plans, down payment plans, credit cards, all that kind of thing. It's the exact same thing we're going through now. And the big irony in this for me is people point back to uh, the 70s and, and, and they tell me, well, this is stagflation, and, and they're judging that just on the basis of what the price of oil has done and what the price of commodities have done. But what we're really seeing is a collapse in the boom of credit, and it's the same thing that happened right leading up to the Great Depression. They're trying to fight it now. They're trying to fight it with the same measures. It was amazing to me to find out and the, the amount of information that comes out right now, and this is probably increasing the volatility in the market, but when we see that Paulson calls a meeting and holds nine of the top bank, cent, uh, uh, CEOs for the top nine banks in the country and tells them they must sign this document, that they are going to take uh, an influx of $250 billion, whether they like it or not, and pay preferred shareholders 5% on that. He is trying to force the banks to lend. It's the exact same mistake that was made during the Great Depression. We're repeating it again. No one sees it. Very few people are even talking about it. Mike, what are your comments on that? Yeah, I just wanted to add a little bit of a kind of historical anecdote uh, about that expansion of credit uh, before the Great Depression. Um, my father was very successful in his career, but my grandfather less so. And uh, my father's written a kind of family history, and uh, I, I've, I've, I've uh, referred to it in some articles, an article I wrote for Financial Sense uh, called uh, 
um, lessons of our grandparents, uh, which people can find on Financial Sense if they're interested. But what's interesting is um, my grandfather in 1929 bought a brand-new Model A car. And um, my father remembers that as a wonderful moment for him as a child, seeing this car pull up in the driveway, you know, in, the, in front of the house. And uh, what's interesting about that is my grandfather at the time was working um, he had various jobs in his life, but he was working then as a piano tuner. And there was no way that he could, you know, easily afford to repay the, the, the mortgage, the, uh, and the monthly payments on, on a car. So that car stayed in the family for a few months and then we lost it. Um, so that, that was the same thing. People who probably shouldn't have been getting credit were getting easy credit back in 1928, 29 and, Later on, when that credit was no longer available, things got sold and the economy shrank. Yeah, so we're going through the same pattern again. We are going through the same pattern, and, and, but, but people are fighting the last battle. They're pointing to the stagflation that we saw in the 70s. But you know, I, I don't know whether I coined this phrase, but I, I've not seen it anywhere else other than on my blog. But I, I started talking about peak credit, and peak credit is, <laughs> is actually where Prechter went wrong. You know, he's been calling for this downturn for a long, long time. But the downturn could not happen until peak credit hit. And look at all the things that have happened since the 80s. In the 80s, we had a one-family income. Well, that went to a two-family income. And uh, then we saw uh, with the... Uh, credit reinvestment acts and and all the like that that banks and and whatever had to extend credit to the poor and at first they resisted but then they found well okay it was it was okay for them to do that as long as they could jack up the credit card rates to a rate high enough that would cover the defaults so here we have predatory mm-hmm. lending going on that was actually mandated by laws in Congress and well. Eventually, that dried up, so we see uh, Bush and, and others. It, it actually predates Bush, but we see the, um, uh, what do you call it, the ownership society kind of mentality, which, which Bush heightened, that, that everyone should have a house. And so we have all of these affordable housing programs that cannot possibly work, because when you're trying to get people to buy houses, well, the prices of houses are going to go up. So we saw housing prices go up. We saw lending standards drop. And finally, peak credit was hit at the exact time when everyone who wanted a house could buy one. And lending standards had dropped low enough such that people who didn't really even want one ended up going out and buying one anyway. That was it. We had people camping out overnight in Florida, standing in line, actually entering lottery tickets to be able to buy Florida condos. I looked at that. A cover of Time magazine came out. I I remember it clearly. Summer of 2005. Why were Gaga over real estate? I looked at that and I said, Matt, sentiment does not get any more extreme than that. Who is left to buy? I decided there, there was no one left to buy and that home prices had only one way to go, and that was down. 
That, uh, but ironically, peak credit still kept on going. It expanded into commercial real estate. It expanded into commodities. We had hedge funds, all the like, ramping up leverage, an increased amount of leverage that's now unwinding. To, to uh, uh, that that kept the bubble going for two full years after housing started to go down. I, I was amazed actually at at the amount. And Chuck Prince, CEO. Miss, have you have you have you seen this? Um, have you seen this uh, wonderful YouTube video? Um, I think um, uh, you you might have seen it. it. Came out about a year ago at, at the Christmas time. It was called "Liquidity Keeps Falling on My Head." I think I have seen that, and there, there's another one out there called Bubbles or something with, with <laughs> Greenspan. Both of those are great videos. Yes, I, I, I'm sure I've seen them. I, I don't have a copy saved up for you know to post on my blog or anything. But yeah, those are great videos, well, and I'll, that's I'll, exactly what happened. Yeah, I'll send it to you. And and you know, it, it, I think when that much liquidity is around, I mean, I met a guy over here who's involved in the. Buying companies and so forth, and he says, you know, debt's so easy to get right now. It's a shame not to use it. So that's why I'm buying companies because the banks will take, you know, virtually all the risk. Yeah. So he was making acquisitions, risk, but but, but um, I don't. Where is he today? I'm wondering. The, the unless he's the, struggling. <laughs> yes, exactly. And it wouldn't surprise me. We 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 saw the same thing. Who was it that that bought the uh, General Motors building and then leveraged it to the hilt and lost it? But we, we, we've seen um, all kinds, and we saw Sam Zell, who managed to actually unload a lot of his commercial real estate at, at the top and then turn right around and buy Whoops. something that he doesn't even know anything about, the, uh, the, the Chicago Tribune. What, is, <laughs> what did Sam Zell know about newspapers? You know, that is exactly well, Sam was Sam was the one, actually, that, that, that had the uh, – he sent it out as a Christmas card. Liquidity keeps uh, falling on my head. That was his Christmas card last year. So, <laughs> well, um, it it does. Let me tell you, this is important to understand. Liquidity is a coward. You know, as as long as it's going up, everything looks great. But at the first sign of trouble, liquidity runs like a coward, and that's where we're at today. And um, Bernanke and Paulson are trying to do everything in their power to get banks to lend. But it is exactly the wrong thing to do. I railed about this in my blog. I was so infuriated. I was on Coast to Coast uh, uh, live radio the other night, and I was almost at a loss for words. I was so upset about what Paulson was trying to do. He got all these bankers together, forced this money down their throat, even in spite of Wells Fargo, who managed at, at least to a far lesser degree than anyone else, to get caught up in, in this uh, uh, credit housing lending bubble. They didn't even want the money. At least they didn't want the money on those terms. They had to take it anyway. And Paulson's trying to force banks to lend. But I'm sitting here, lend for what? We don't need any but more. We've we got, we got, we got 4.5% LIBOR right now, which is, uh, you know, I, I'll tell you how this is impinging over here in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. Um Basically, there isn't going to be a Christmas, and um, you know I heard from a, a lawyer a couple of, a couple of days ago that on the shelves of Bloomingdale's or someplace like that, they still got their summer stock. They haven't brought any winter clothing out yet, and uh, what that means is they're not 
reordering. They're not bringing in, the, you know, the clothing and the goods and the toys and so forth. They normally have for Christmas sales just aren't coming over. So that's one reason the shipping rates are going uh, so low is that, you know, people aren't moving the goods anymore. Um, exactly. And, uh, you know, that that's going to be a disaster, I think, for some factories in Hong Kong who, you know, basically, you know, are saying, you know, can we survive the next three to five months? They, three they to five it. months? This is going to go on for two years or more. We have seen a secular peak in ridiculous consumption here in the United States. And I had people tell me that the U.S. consumer would never, and they were emphatic about it, they would put it in quotes, in big block letters, the U.S. consumer will never throw in the towel. Miss you wrong. Well, it, it is exactly that kind of sentiment that is that what it takes to reach a peak. And we have reached not only peak credit, but we have reached peak consumption, at least in terms of the U.S. consumer. And the U.S. consumer, in spite of what everything is going on in China, the U.S. the U.S. is the dog and China is the tail. Now, that might change 20 years from now or 40 or 30 or 10, but we need to focus on what's happening now. And, and right now, there's, there's no way in hell that, that China can disconnect from the U.S. when it's uh, U.S. and EU and U.K. consumption that has been, been fueling a lot of the production, productive cap capacity out of China. We're now seeing a, a China productive capacity has actually contracted two months in a row. China is trying to stimulate their economy over there in spite of the fact that they're still growing by 4 or 5%. Someone looking for inflation can find it in China. Someone looking for deflation can find it in the United States, the UK, the EU, Australia. How much longer do you think this deleveraging process has got to go, Mish? At what point will the, uh, the, the hedge funds stop being forced sellers of everything? Wow, that's a really good question. I don't think anyone knows the answer to that. Um, I think we're still seeing bottom fishers. We're, we're seeing bottom fishers today. Uh, and there's no reason, fundamental reason or, or, or the like, for, for the stock market to rally like it, like it did today. But uh, everything's sentiment now. But the sentiment is is just extreme. We're seeing these four, five, seven, ten percent moves on a daily basis, only to all be given back two and three days later. These are crash conditions when you see this kind of thing happen. Going up, down, up, down. Um, one of these times, we're going to go lock limit down and stay down. So I don't think that the hedge funds have unwound everything. And there was an interesting comment come out today from Paulson, who said that as long as hedge funds aren't regulated, that they're not going to you know, get any of this money that, that, that they're trying to give to the banks. Banks are calling in credit for the hedge funds. I think uh, I've seen people talk about, and it wouldn't surprise me, but I've not seen an actual report from a uh, reputable news agency like Bloomberg or whatever, that that was what was behind the collapse in gold today, that um, uh, hedge funds are having their credit pulled. They have to sell not what they 
want to, but but anything where they've got a profit to be able to meet margins. And one of those things where a lot of them have had profits over the years is just buying and holding on gold. But when you buy it at 250 and hold on to it, you're fine. Or 400 and hang on to it, you're fine. But when you buy it at 250 and you add it 400 and you add it 500 and you add it 700 and then you add more at the top at a thousand, now you're in trouble. And so we're seeing a mass liquidation. I talked to a friend of mine who is also the head metals broker at, at Alaron and he was talking about long liquidation. That's, that's what we're seeing here. And I don't, I don't think we know how long it's going to go because we don't know whether it's going to just collapse all of a sudden or be dragged out for uh, another year or longer. So I, I think it depends on the speed of the descent, but also fueling the decline in commodities is the fact that the world economy is slowing. I, I, I talked about it today. I talked about a on my blog. And by the way, uh, people can just do a Google search for MISH. Very hard to remember global economic analysis dot blogspot. But if you just do a Google search for MISH, M-I-S-H, you can find my blog. And today I was talking about a fool's mission for OPEC. And OPEC wants to try and support um the price of oil, they didn't want it to fall below 100. They, they, they said that that's where they thought it should be. Well, the, the, the problem is, I don't, first of all, I don't think they can be successful because uh, the tendency is for OPEC uh, member states to actually cheat and, and supply more oil. But if for some reason they manage to get together and cut off the supply, now we are looking at a situation where not only are consumers and businesses both in stress, but we, but OPEC will be attempting to put an artificial uh, uh, constraint on the price of oil above that. That is the last thing that that needs to happen because that can only the only effect it can, that can possibly have is to accelerate the speed of the the recession. It it just can't work. You can't prop up artificially prop up prices. The last thing we need right now is is for OPEC to attempt to do that, yet they're having an emergency meeting right now to do just that. Mish, I, I have a question about m- money flows here because I'm looking at an article uh, dated yesterday, I think, and it talks about how mutual fund investors pulled about $14 billion uh, out of stocks in uh, the week ended October 15th, and the week before that they pulled out $43 billion. And uh, those are pretty big numbers. And I'm just thinking, well, you, you, you know, you can pull money out of mutual funds, but when the stocks get sold, I mean, someone's buying those stocks. So, you know, who's buying those stocks is an interesting question. Well, and then what about the ahead. money? I mean, once it gets pulled out and put in bonds or money funds, eventually that money can come back into the stock market. So th- there must be a lot of money in certain hands waiting to come back in. Um, that theory fails. You had it right the first time. You, you, you should have stopped. The reason why it fails, it, you had it right, is because for, for in the stock market, uh, when someone sells, someone else is buying. So in terms of sideline cash, and, and that's the, the myth of the sideline cash theory that I've talked about um, at length, actually, several times on my blog, 
people say, well, there's all this sideline cash waiting to come back in the market. Well, if someone sells Google at 100 bucks, someone else is buying Google at 100 bucks. At the end of the transaction, there's exactly as much sideline cash at the end of that as there was before. So the sideline cash theory actually has to fail. Money does not really flow into stocks like people think that it does because, uh, uh, like I said, for every buyer, there there is a, a seller. The only time that that doesn't hold true is at IPO time when there is no pre-existing stock. Money has to come from somewhere so we can have sideline cash come into the market at IPO time. And um, we can probably also see cash being destroyed at um, when the company goes bankrupt. But, you know, outside of those two things, the amount of cash before and after the transaction is the same. So sideline cash theory does not hold true. But um, what is actually happening, rather, is a repricing event. That's what we're seeing now. You know, uh, uh, Google was at $700 not too long ago, and what it 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 it, it plunged to a third of that, and it's a there wasn't all of this massive amount of selling that happened there. Rather, the value of Google was repriced over time. That's what we're seeing here. We're seeing a repricing in oil. We're seeing a repricing in in uh, stocks. We're seeing a repricing in treasuries. We're seeing all of these repricing events move on really relatively small underlying percentages of transactions. Actually, housing a housing example might make this more clear. In uh, a, a subdivision, uh, a builder finishes a subdivision. People buy those houses at, for, let's say, $400,000. The, the builder has three of them left, even though he might have sold 100 already. To get rid of those last three, he comes in and reprices them at, at $250,000. So on a mere three housing units out of the 200 that he sold, when he sells those last two for 250000 to get rid of them, that entire subdivision was just repriced down. And that's what we're seeing happen in the, the stock market. But Mish, today. the man, the man who sold all those houses is then sitting with a load of cash. He's sitting with a load of cash, but he was probably leveraged to banks in the first place to be able to build them. So home builders are actually going bankrupt. So a lot of this has to do, and then and there's loans on the books of the banks to these home builders. They're trying to keep the home builders float afloat so that they don't go bankrupt. Otherwise, the bank's going to get stuck with, with all of that debt. The bank financed the debt for these home builders to go out and buy all of this land, and and that was a, a malinvestment. Now they're they're writing off this land. And the banks are hoping that these home builders can manage to stay in business long enough to uh, uh, get some of the loans that they've extended back to them. So, but but yeah, I mean the money is out there, sort of still floating around. But but where did it go? You know, some of it's in yeah. sovereign well, I, wealth funds. Some of it. I'd is, like to pick up a two. Two two points on that is one one is um, I, I think my original point about the money flowing into mutual 
fund investors is, I mean, what does happen is uh, a certain type of uh, investor, let's call them mutual fund investors, mm-hmm. um, they can actually have cash on the sidelines and someone else has to provide the cash they're getting. But mm-hmm. um, s- somehow this trim tabs uh, service manages to track, you know, the, the money of mutual fund investors. And one would kind of wonder, I mean, what's, I don't have the data, but what's their track record over time of entering and exiting the market? Do they usually get it right? Um, when, when mutual fund investors, quote unquote, have sold a lot, uh, does that money subsequently come back in with mutual fund investors again putting the money back in? I don't know who's on the other side of that transaction, which is right. what would make the whole thing a lot more interesting. But coming on to the housing thing, I mean, you mentioned the word malinvestment, and I just wanted to pick up on that because I've been writing about that myself for financial sense, and um, I have a little kind of catch uh, statement I make, which is that the U.S. went out and, and borrowed several trillion dollars, yes. uh, some of that from foreigners, uh, to invest in McMansions and SUVs. And yes. the effect of that was to increase our dependency on foreign oil. Yeah, exactly. um, I mean, you know, it, 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 there's a really interesting little chart, Mission. I'd like, I'd like you to maybe just look at this article sometime. You can, if you put uh, "rebuilding U.S. wealth" in the Google, you'll, it'll take you to the article. Send me a um, link. But there's a chart in there which I borrowed: "rebuilding U.S. wealth." Um, and there's a chart in there in, in the article. It's on financial sense, and which is really interesting chart. And I, I got it out of the South China Morning Post, and I think they got it out of New York Times. But the chart is entitled Room to Move, and it, it, it's a graph showing the median square foot floor area in new privately owned U.S. single-family home, single homes. And in 1982, which was kind of a dip bottom there, it was 1,500 square foot per home. And in 2006 at the top, it was 22,550. So there's an increase there of... 50% in the the average size of the new home. And I think about that and I realize, wow, a bigger home like that, 50% larger, is going to take a lot more energy to heat. Yes, it is. Those homes are going to have a bigger footprint. They're going to be further away. There's going to be a longer driving distance between driveways. And what this increase in, in, in home size is doing is it's really increasing the U.S. dependency on oil. Yeah. And, and what happened, I mean, you talk about malinvestment. That's enormous malinvestment. Yes, it is. And um, even more so when you consider, well, the real part of the malinvestment was the liar loans lending to people who could not possibly ever, ever pay those loans back. And that was all predicated on the idea that home prices keep rising over time. You know, I want to return, though, to... Um, to uh, a talk about actual inflation deflation kind of uh, theories and um yes i am can i, can I ask Austin... you a question about that mish sure the um huge amount of liquidity that has been pumped into the system by mm-hmm. paulson and bernanke and then over here yeah. we have uh, mm-hmm. messrs brown and darling uh you know buying huge stakes in various banks where mm-hmm. has that money come from and is that not inflationary okay is it not inflationary the 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 printing of money in and of itself is inflationary and china is and what's happening in china by the way people talk about all the savings going on in china well 
there is savings going on in China, but not as much as people think. And the reason why is is uh, China, in order to suppress the value of the renminbi, people can call it the yuan, y-u-a-n instead. That's easier to remember. But in order to suppress the yuan, the the Bank of China was printing yuan um, like mad in ex- to exchange for U.S. dollars. That's why they're sitting on that big stockpile over there. People look at that big stockpile and say, my God, look at the massive savings over there in China. Well, printing one to buy dollars does not constitute savings, in my opinion. So that's why China is sitting on all of those treasuries. Yes, that is, that is actually inflationary in China. And as far as I'm concerned, there is rampant inflation going on in China. And in the U.S., on the other hand, until very recently, uh, and, and we, we need to talk about that very recently, but until recently, there was almost no printing going on in the United States. Rather, we had this expansion of credit that, that fueled asset prices over here. And it's actually interesting to, to see that Bernanke actually commented today, or yesterday, I'm not sure which, but, but uh, he commented that, well, you know, maybe the Greenspan, he didn't say the Greenspan was wrong, but you can read between the lines, maybe we need to consider asset bubbles in our monetary policy. Finally, an, an admission that the, the Greenspan Fed was wrong, even though he didn't use the term. So, but in, in terms of the printing that's going on here in the United States, and there's no doubt that it's going on, one can just go pull up a chart of base money supply and, and, and see that it's exploding. Now, um, this is where I get into a difference of opinion with, um, and I highly respect James Turk, by the way, he, and he's not here to defend himself, but uh, um, I will say that, that there's a lot of people that, that think along the lines that, that he does in uh, uh, that this monetary printing in and of itself constitutes inflation well i don't think it does because one has to to me inflation is a net expansion of um of money and credit so we to uh people that look at this from a purely monetary standpoint they say that inflation is an increase in money supply alone and I think that is flawed, a flawed definition. By that definition, actually, Japan never went into deflation until actually quite recently. Uh, the, and by any measure, you know, that says that Japan didn't go through deflation, I, I think that it just has to be a flawed definition. So, I, I, um, and right now, Unfortunately, because they've suspended the mark-to-market rules of of assets on the uh, balance sheets of banks, we really don't know how fast that credit is collapsing. It's it's being hidden from us. We can't see it. They're hiding out. The banks and the brokerages are hiding out in level three assets, not marking the stuff to market. So yeah, we've seen this huge monetary increase this huge expanse in the money supply but if one looks at the credit on the books if that credit was marked to market i think even in spite of this massive increase in the money supply we've seen 
that credit mark-to-market is still dwarfing that, that supply of credit. That's point number one. Point number two is in a fiat system. It's not just the, the printing of that money. It, it, that money actually has to get into the economy to do anything. There is uh, Austrian economist Frank Shostak had an um, interview uh, on uh, Mises, where he Mises, he where he was talking about this same construct that the Fed could print, but if that money doesn't get into circulation, if that money doesn't go anywhere, if it just sits there at the bank, it's not going to cause prices to go up. It's 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 not going to do anything at all. If I invented a uh, perfect counterfeiting machine right now today, where one could not uh, distinguish between money that I printed between money that was coming out of the Fed and I printed a trillion dollars and buried it in my backyard it wouldn't affect a, a thing and that's how we have to look at this if the Fed prints a trillion dollars but it just sits there and it doesn't go anywhere in a fiat society yeah that money's out there and it's a potential inflationary a huge potential inflationary problem down the road but it's not causing one right now. That's how we need to but look isn't at that, it. But isn't that LIBOR? Isn't that LIBOR? I mean, I think at this point it might be interesting to talk about LIBOR a little bit because mm -hmm. uh, the banks uh, get money very cheaply uh, from the Fed at, you know, very low interest rates. And then LIBOR, which, you know, one wonders whether it means anything anyway, but LIBOR has expressed now three-month LIBOR about 4.5%. Yes. So, um you know, companies that want access to that money that's in the banks, they got to pay a lot of, they got to pay LIBOR plus something to get it, if they can get it at all. Yeah, so, that's um, exactly right. So, banks are know, acting, what? banks are acting rationally right now. Paulson's put a bazooka to their head, and he said, "We're going to give you this money, and we want you to lend it." The banks are saying, "We don't want to lend this money because there's no creditworthy customers out there that want to borrow it." The there are people that want to borrow it, but banks are looking at the people that want to borrow it, and for the first time in years, they're seeing, my God, these aren't good credit risks. We don't want to lend this money. So, you know, that is the mistake that that, that Paulson made at at Bazooka Point. The mistake, you know, uh, it, it's one thing to give them the money, because you know, if they just give them this money, and it and it and it sits there. And uh, Bernanke uh, got his wish that that, um, that interest would be paid on on bank reserves. So we, we could have seen a slow recapitalization of these banks over time at taxpayer expense, of course. But um, at least you know that would happen. But now he's gone in and he forced them at gunpoint to sign this agreement. At, at which they have to pay 5% for this money that some of them didn't even want. So what is that going to do? That's, that, that is actually going to, that's going to increase the pressure on, on banks to do stupid things, like lend money to, uh, uh, customers that they don't want, really want to lend it to. So exactly the wrong prescription, you know, from, from, from Paulson. And, but the reason why we're seeing LIBOR this high is because banks don't trust each other. Why don't they trust each other? They don't trust each other because they suspended mark-to-market accounting. So no one knows what the assets on the balance sheets of these banks are worth. So the banks don't trust each other. They don't want to lend to each other. They're afraid of getting their money back. 
They'd rather sit on their money. All of that, to me, is, is an exact rational response. Uh, the response from Paulson is, well, we need to free up lending, and, it, and it's wrong because it's going to lead to more defaults and more bankruptcies. So but and, it but as, as long it, as the it, banks it, don't lend, we're not in an inflationary environment, period. Isn't it, isn't it possible that, that the banks themselves are impaired by this uh, problems in their level two assets? Yes, and, um, level three. That, that their customers on the other side actually might be more credit worthy than the banks themselves. So the money gets stuck. Some of them. You know, in individual. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, some of them. I mean, obviously, lending to a builder in the, the middle of the stranded suburbs is, is a disaster. But, you know, lending to, um, you know, uh, uh, a business, uh, gold, what's well, a gold miner maybe, but lending to, there, there must be many viable businesses in the states that aren't able to get money right now and, and think that LIBOR at four and a half percent is a very expensive price to pay. And how do you get the money into those corporations that really are the lifeblood of the American economy? I think the money is going to them already. We, we've, we've seen, um, I can't remember the name of the bank, but the CEO of, of some mid-sized bank came out and he said, um, you know, we're not having any problems. We're still willing to make loans. He actually put out an ad. So you need money, come to us. But, but that corporation, that bank is, is, is looking at, at all of these risks and deciding, I mean, if, if, if the Fed wanted, and the Treasury wanted to give money to someone, they probably should give, be giving money to these banks that didn't make mistakes, that are yeah. extremely well capitalized, instead of the banks that did make mistakes and and don't and need the money just to stay in business. That's that's what's happening. But um, I don't I, I don't buy it. I've heard these stories that uh, businesses can't borrow need money to be able to make payroll. Well, you know what? If they need money to make payroll, they're in trouble. Okay, well, gentlemen, I've got um, two questions for you. Uh, um, so let's start with the first one as, as we kind of look to close, uh, to, to close this conversation down. Mike, what's your outlook for gold here over the next uh, year or so? Mike Hampton. Um, well, I, we saw a huge drop yesterday, and, and it came to a pretty critical level, uh, sort of the breakout point on the huge thrust up. And, uh, I, you know, it, I really haven't had time to analyze that, but it was $40 in five minutes or something like that. And, it, you know, just amazing. So somebody big must have pulled the trigger and made a big sell very quickly. So, um, I, I, I think, look, I think the, that once the LIBOR rates start coming down, uh, there might be a breath of relief and, 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 uh, uh, gold might uh, drift a little lower, but longer term, when that money starts getting out in the system, if it does, then uh, we're going to see some inflationary <laughs> forces in the economy. And at that point, I think gold has uh, a chance to move up a lot. So we might see a range trade here between 950 and 730 and maybe even lower uh, until that happens. Mish? Um, I've got a similar but not exact viewpoint. I don't know where the bottom is here in gold. I'm not surprised by the sell-off that, that other people have seen because my model had for, in the initial stages of deflation, gold falling because of the reduced leverage and the reduced leverage that we've seen everywhere in hedge funds, in mutual funds, in banks, in brokerage houses. That's what we're seeing. We're seeing an unwind 
of uh, the carry trade. We're seeing an unwind of the short dollar, long commodity trade. But if you actually look at the price of gold, and you look at the price of gold versus the price of copper, gold versus the price of oil, gold versus the price of wheat, gold versus the price of almost any other commodity, gold especially, look at gold versus silver. That's a really interesting one. And um, you will see that uh, gold is off maybe 20% or so of its high, and some of these other commodities, nickel, might be off 75%, silver off 50% from their highs. So uh, gold, the purchasing power of gold is holding up, which is in, and that's in real terms compared to the other commodities. That is what I would expect to see out of a deflationary scenario where gold is acting more like a currency. The only reason why gold is going down in nominal terms is because of the leverage that hedge funds and others, people that bought gold, actually for the wrong reasons, uh, um, in with massive amounts of leverage, uh, um, betting on uh, an inflationary scenario that's just not happening. We are in deflation right now if one considers deflation to be a net contraction of credit, credit mark-to-market, that's very important, versus an increase in money, and importantly, that money has to get into the real economy, not just be printed and sit there at, at, at uh, the banks. And your, so, your outlook for gold for the next year or so? Oh, I'm sorry. For the next year or so, I'm, I, well, you see me hedging. I, I'm, I'm not sure that I want to give you one. I will give you a longer-term outlook that, that says th- that I expect gold to do extremely well. I like gold here. You might recall when we were last on, you know, uh, um, our conversation, you asked people around the table what one asset class that they would pick right then and now. I actually picked U.S. Treasuries. I was the lone person at the table that picked U.S. Treasuries, and here we are. U.S. Treasuries have certainly outperformed virtually any other asset class that one can imagine. Right now, I am kind of agnostic over the short term, over a very long, over a longer term, not even just a very long term, but over a longer term, I like gold. I'm reluctant to put a price on it because in real terms, the price of gold is already soaring. Gold versus houses, gold versus copper, gold versus oil is soaring right now. It's a mistake to look at gold in nominal terms and say, oh, my God, it's, it's down another $40 today. Gold is actually performing very well. People just don't realize it. And at some point when they do, we are going to see the Huey and the XAU skyrocket. That's my opinion. I don't want to put a target on it. Mish, what do you... I know once upon a time I heard you talking about junior miners and you said you quite liked them. They have possibly been the single worst performing sector of all. What's your outlook for junior Canadian gold miners? Junior Canadian gold miners? Well, a lot of that is going to depend on whether or not they can stay in business. The um, um, As part of the this decrease in leverage everywhere it's hard to get funding for things those that are producing gold actually producing gold right now should do well 
the, the explorers that depend on financing to keep going, those are the ones that are in trouble. Mike, do you, what's your view on the juniors? Well, I have to agree with that. And, you know, I think uh, juniors are at the end of a chain where uh, basically you have to see first the gold price go up and then you have to see, uh, you know, senior gold stocks go up and then junior producers go up and then maybe you'll see the ones that are still left, the explorers go up. So they're at the end of a long chain and uh, you got to watch the front of that chain. And uh, if the front of that chain is going to range trade, um, you know, maybe the juniors are cheap enough now. People just hold them as, you know, like, uh, you know, out of the money call options on some future and day when when they can be worth something. But meantime, they're burning, you know, they're burning up and uh, they need to stay alive. And th those that need to go back to the market are going to be raising money at lower and lower prices. So it's uh, it's a it's a wasting asset right now. Uh, so the ones to focus on are the ones that are producing gold. I agree with that, and I, and I, and I especially like um, uh, what Mike said about considering them as a call uh, uh, option. It's actually a call option that doesn't expire. You you, you buy some of these com uh, companies if you can pick out the good ones that are likely to survive, that are likely to get financing, or that are sitting on uh, um, a chunk of cash that are not burning it up as fast as the other ones. Those are the ones that are that are going to do well. And but unlike an option where you know you go out and buy it, that option expires. These options only expire if the company goes bankrupt. So um, there's an advantage to doing that, but one has to be careful in this environment of picking the ones that either can get financing or have enough cash on the sidelines to uh, uh, be able to keep in business and stay doing what they're doing. Cash flow, cash flow is king. <laughs> it is. Cash flow is. is king. Well, I know which ones I like. Um, finally, gents, uh, Mike, you mentioned uh, U.S. Treasuries. The the long bond seems to be breaking down. The U.S. long bond. Well, breaking down from what? I mean, if if we we look at the sell off in the long bond, yeah, I mean it, it was. It was uh, just under four and sold off to you know four thirty or something. Is 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 four thirty really a breakdown in the long bond? And I and if it is a breakdown in comparison to what? So um, uh, I happen to like it going forward. We'll see. The treasury curve on the long end is is almost flat now. There's, there's hardly any difference between the the 10 year and and the 30 year, so you know we'll have to see what that does. But um, one of the reasons why the long bond has sold off is is the and treasuries in general is just the massive amount of of printing that that's going on, the massive amount of financing that's going on right now to support the the Paulson plan uh, is, is what it is, and although I'm not surprised by the Paulson plan, I actually predicted long in advance that, that the that the government would react just as they have. Uh, I was certainly shocked by the size of it, and and I think the bond market was shocked by the size of it. So you know that's that's what we're seeing here, but I, I think the question that's going to come for investors. Particularly, you know, in the United States, is would you rather make 
4% in treasuries or lose 30% in the stock market. <laughs> <laughs> Mish, when do you think we'll see, if ever, <laughs> LIBOR below 3%? Oh my gosh, library below three. Actually, I think it's going to come faster than people think. I, uh, um, w- one reason is, is once Paulson actually starts giving this money, remember, this is all theory now. No dollar has actually gone to any of these banks yet. W- once, once the, uh, these dollars do flow to these banks, I think we're going to see what I'm going to call pretend lending. We're going to see Banks pretend to loan each money, each other money, and that money is not really going to be used, but Citigroup's going to loan some money to Bank of America, and Bank of America is going to loan it to Wachovia, and Wachovia is going to loan money to uh, you know, any number of other banks. So we're going to, you know, see some sort of, you know, round robin of lending here between banks where they're increasing confidence in, in terms of them trusting each other just because of the guarantees that have gone out there. So I think we might see, um, uh, and I'm actually surprised that it hasn't happened already, but maybe it's just because that, that, that money's not there yet, that, that it's just talk. And, and when that happens, I think in Elliott Wave terms, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the S&P 500. It, you know, we were in a, a three of three down, a, a massive move. Lower. I think we're going to see, you know, some kind of rebound uh, um, uh, above and beyond, you know, what we've seen this chop in the last few days when when banks do start lending. But it's just going to be pretend lending, just like we're seeing the uh, uh, pretending of the value of level three assets on the books of these banks. It's not going to be real, but it might placate the markets for a while. So. Um, I actually expect that LIBOR is, is, is going to be dropping relatively uh, in some relatively quick time frame within, say, the next you know, month or two. And it wouldn't surprise me if it started tomorrow. And if you were, if you were um, an investor and you actually had some money left, where would you be putting it to work now, gentlemen? Let's start with you, Mike. Um, yeah, I'd be, I'd be pretty cautious right now. Um, um, you know, I might have a lot in cash. I'd be tempted to try and buy some call options. Uh, they're going to be expensive in terms of volatility, um, um, you know, when you think you see a low. Um, but I wouldn't put the bulk of it to work. Because um, like Mish, I think, you know, we're going to get a rally. I guess we'll probably get SPX uh, 1060, maybe SPX uh, 1200, uh, if we're lucky, over a period of, uh, I think probably until first quarter sometime. I think as well we're going to have some kind of uh, relief when the election's over and there's a new president coming because, you know, everyone's going to look, you know, forward to a new president, whoever he is, and uh, that might help the rally along a bit. And if there's a first 100-day type program coming out of the new president, and I think that's fairly possible with Obama, then uh, that might give us uh, a reason to be optimistic for some weeks and months. Mish? 1060 is a very good target. It's the exact same number that I had in mind. Uh, I don't think we can get to the higher number that Mike mentioned, but I don't think we can get there. It's possible. It's technically possible. So um, um, that was a good comment by Mike, um, and I will weigh in and say, okay, I agree. I also agree with his comment that putting cash to work right now is, is a very difficult thing to do. One of the things that we've done 
at, at Sitka Pacific is in one of our strategies um, called hedge growth. We're actually market neutral, and we've been market neutral almost uh, uh, since August of 2009. We're, we're equal weighted long and short, and we make money by being able to distinguish whether or not one should be long uh, or distinguish between picking a good long versus picking a good short. Uh, that strategy is up almost 13% this year, and in in the face of what's happening here, I think that's uh, if I can pat myself on the back, that's actually quite a a good performance here, especially since we're 33% cash for almost all of that same time frame. So I like that strategy. I think a long short short strategy, if one is is picking these these stocks carefully, is a good one. Otherwise, I will emphasize what Mike just said. Stay on the sidelines. There's there's not a lot of reasons, unless you're hedged in some fashion, to be involved in this market. There's nothing wrong with with being in treasuries. There's nothing wrong with being in CDs. There's nothing wrong with just being in cash and waiting for this thing to bottom. Because um, our targets for the S&P are 600, and if 600 doesn't hold, it's going to see 450. So that is not a good environment in which, especially with all of these swings that we're seeing, seven, six, five, I mean, on a daily basis, it, it's amazing the amount of swings that we're seeing every day, another swing. So um, stay on the sideline, stay in cash, stay liquid, and, um, you know, live within your means uh, would be what I would, you know, tell people, be prepared to lose your job, all of those things. And that's the kind of sentiment that I think is is going to be in, increasing and um, that's exactly the kind of sentiment that Paulson and Bernanke don't want to see. They want to encourage risk-taking, but it's not in the average person's best interest to do so. So, And I think people are slowly figuring that out, and that's not going to do the stock market any good. I don't think the final bottom is in, regardless of, of, of what happens here in the, the, the next whatever. And if we get back up to uh, the 1060 that Mike mentioned or even higher, it's just going to be another selling opportunity. So um, st- stay in cash, stay liquid, stay in treasuries, short-term treasuries. If you buy my deflation theory, then the sell-off in the, in the long bond is a good entry on the long bond right now. Otherwise, um, I'll just stay liquid. Well, for what little it's worth, uh, I can see a couple of very uh, good gold-producing juniors, and uh, I'd be looking at a possible seasonal trade uh, between now and the spring because some of them are trading at extremely cheap levels. Even BHP, four times earnings BHP is now. Do you know what I mean by BHP Billiton? Yes, BHP. That's the copper producer, right? Uh, everything. Oil, copper, gold, coal, iron ore. Where, where are, I don't know. You know, the question is where are those things going to trade? Um, where are the prices of commodities going to be? The, I mean, I, I look at that, you know, they want, who was it that BHP wanted to buy out? And it was an insane yeah. price. And who, whoever turned that offer down was nuts. I mean, they could have gotten all that cash if that was a cash offer, you know, uh, uh, for that price. And, and I, I think it was shares, I mean, actually. I think it was shares. It was shares that, yeah, it was uh, shares. Rio, the Rio, it was, it, was, it was shares for shares, I think. So maybe, um, uh, but, but in, in a similar vein, 
looking at the NASDAQ, Microsoft offered $32 a share for Yahoo. Yahoo turned it down, said it wasn't enough. I think Microsoft was willing to go to 34 but Yahoo wanted 37 And um, uh, just yesterday, or just today, actually, Yahoo traded as low as $11.37. And that uh, was an all-cash offer from Microsoft. Wow. I do see, by the way, a lot of people have been calling, because some of these juniors are so cheap, they've been calling for takeovers. But the takeovers aren't going to happen because people are going to need to... Uh, in many cases, borrow some money uh, to, exactly to make a takeover, right. and the finance isn't there. Right. The takeovers won't happen until, I don't think, and, and, until the market starts heading back up. That might be, and, and that's one of the things. So you asked me, you know, where we were going. We really need to see what the next Congress does. We need to see what Obama does. Uh, um, if, if Obama pulls the troops out of Iraq and starts spending money, um, on infrastructure in the United States instead of dropping bombs on Iraq and Afghanistan or wherever, and if they can get the budget uh, 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 just even marginally better than what people are expecting it to be, we can see an increase in the dollar. We, we can All of these things are in play. And until we see uh, what, what the next Congress is going to do and what Obama is going to do, we, we really can't make these long-term predictions because Obama might be saying anything just to get elected. We really need to see how he's going to react once he's in. So that's one of the reasons why I'm hesitant, you know, was hesitant to give you uh, um, uh, targets on some of these does, things. Does the, I mean, surely it's not in America's interests to have a strong dollar because it just makes all that debt all that harder to pay off. I don't know that that's true. And um, um, also, you know, from an aspect of, of uh, I, I can tell you that all of this printing is actually counterproductive. I've, uh, people have told me that the U.S. needs to inflate its way out of this. It's actually impossible to inflate our way out of this because that increases interest on the national debt. It's actually in the U.S.'s best interest to allow deflation to take place where they can refinance all of this massive amount of, of debt we have at, at far lower interest rates. Imagine if they just let the economy collapse and we could, we, we could refinance at a longer term at, at 3% or 2.5% on the long bond instead of pumping all, attempting to pump all of this money into the economy that, that is right now causing the, the 10 year note almost rose 80, 90 basis points from the low since they started this plan, which is the smarter plan. It's in the best interest of the United States, actually, to allow deflation to take hold. People don't realize that, but it is. Very interesting. Well, gentlemen, thank you very much for uh, being so generous with your time, and uh, I, I really appreciate it, and uh, you've both got a great deal of very interesting things to say. Um, as we close, Mish, why don't you give out your website address first? Okay, globaleconomicanalysis.blogspot.com. That is a mouthful, so the simple way to find me is do a Google search for Mish, M-I-S-H. That's the first two characters of my first and last name. This is Mike Shedlock, so do a Google search for Mish, and you can find me. And Mike? I'll give it differently this time, greenenergyinvestors.com. That will take you straight into the chat board. 
OK, and uh, I'll tell you uh, a comment that somebody made to me this week that uh, that made me laugh. He described these markets as being worse than divorce. I've lost half my net worth and I still have my wife. <laughs> <laughs> Mission Mike, thank you very much. And send, Thanks, uh, send us a link when you get done. Commodity Watch Radio is presented and produced by Dominic Frisbee for Mindsight with music by Manolo Camp. To discuss the markets and have your say, why not visit our bulletin board at globaledgeinvestors.com. That's globaledgeinvestors.com.